So um, we're here at Psalm 110. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over or we'll have it on the screen shortly. Uh, Before we get into it, I'd like to make an invitation to say um, we all know what it's like uh, to uh, compartmentalize Jesus Christ. That is, to have him in certain categories of our life. And there's a feature of uh, maturing or growing uh, in our knowledge and walk with Christ is that those categories start to break down. And then Jesus not only becomes um, this aspect of our, of our spirituality or our religion, but actually really does, uh, in, in his appropriate place, become the Lord over everything. And we might say that every once in a while, but we know in our experience how we live our life is that takes time. Uh, there's a certain maturity or godliness to um, actually uh, having Jesus Christ's wisdom and his word um, ruling over all the domains of our life all the time. Uh, Lord, Lord willing, that would be the plan, to get there. That is called being perfected. That is being completed. Uh, we're not there yet. But what we have here, as we go to the Word today, is particularly 150 compartments. These are what the Psalms are. And if you ever stumble across one, and you do stumble through the Psalms, I think everyone would have to say, uh, you stumble through them, And if you stumble on one that doesn't make any sense, or really isn't striking you as true or real, then what you're actually stumbling up against is a domain of your heart that has actually not been uh, ruled and reigned by Jesus Christ. Because these Psalms are written in such a way that they're the fullness of our human experience, our psychology. And so we come to Psalm 10, and I invite you uh, to consider, as I read and as we look through Uh, By God's grace, the question being, can you really sing this psalm? Does it own you, and do you own it? Is this your song? If it isn't, I hope it is by the end of the day, because that would mean that there is just one more inch in your heart in which Jesus Christ reigns more supreme than he did before. And so this is the Psalm 110. It is a Psalm of David, we're told. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, And rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs or heads over the wide earth. And I love this last phrase. It says, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. He will drink from the brook by the way. See what that means? And he's 
the way he's drinking his water is he's lifting up his head. This is the most quoted Old Testament verse in all of the Bible. Something to think of. It is all the apostles in the New Testament, the ones who follow Jesus, the verse of all the Old Testament that they referred back to most frequently, most often, most insistently, it's this. This is the psalm. This almost seems to just be capturing everything of apostolic preaching. What it is with those men who walk with Jesus Christ. As we've been seeing, the point of looking at the Psalms this way is to try to connect them all. What you find is we know the opening door to the Psalms is Psalm 1 and 2. And what you find in here is something very similar, right? To meditate, that is, on God's law. That's the first Psalm. Blessed is the man who meditates. And we were introduced and also invited, introduced to a man who's perfectly blessed, unlike us, Meditating on the law of God day and night, unlike us. Everything he does, he prospers, unlike us, unfortunately. But also being invited, wouldn't you like to be like this man? Don't you want to be like this man, godly, meditating on God's word day and night? That's Psalm 1, just opening the Psalms to you. Wouldn't that be nice? And then the second Psalm is nothing more than a king from Zion, Jerusalem, who will rule the world. Similar, very similar to this Psalm. A man who is from Zion, who has a scepter, the rule world. Now, if you're reading through these psalms, these oracle songs, poems of God, inspired prophetic speech, you stumble. I think it's true to say, at least I will say, if none of you will, considering that the microphone's in front of my mouth today, I stumble through the psalms. I mean, you stumble through them. You, you read some, and you're like, that makes sense. And then sometimes they just plop you in the middle of no context at all, where you're just thinking, what is this guy talking about? Right? And I hope you'd be encouraged by the fact of how C.S. Lewis understood the Psalms. Now that he's an Oxford graduate, right, professor of, liter- of literature, like his job was to read. That's a pretty... He was a professor of literature in Oxford and later Cambridge. Okay, So when he first approached the Psalms, his head was spinning. So be encouraged. That's a good sign. Actually, here's a quote from him. He speaks in this passage where he reflects on his psalms, his understanding of the psalms. He says, When I first began to draw near to belief in God, and even for some time after it had been given to me, I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made, wow, so, just had a quote C.S. Lewis, you should have told me. So clamorously made, that is, this is a stumbling block, of religious people that we should praise God. This idea of religious people saying, now praise God, bothered him, it was a stumbling block. Still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded that we praise him. It's just wrestling with that. What is that? That bothers me. He goes on to say, We all despise that man who demands continual assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, and delightfulness. 
We despise still more the crowd of people round about him, whether it be a dictator or a millionaire or a celebrity, who gratify that demand. Thus, a picture at once so ludicrous and horrible, both of God and of his worshipers, threatened to appear upon my mind. Where did that come from? He read the Psalms. And he said, it is the Psalms who are especially troublesome to me, where they're always saying, praise God. Let all you who fear God, praise God. Come together, all Israel, and let us gather and praise Yahweh. And then God says to his own Psalms, praise me. I'm a big deal and look at me and praise me. And so here's C.S. Lewis being exposed to these psalms saying, that is off-putting. It just doesn't feel right. So he's stumbling through what actually is being said here. The reason, of course, is because he hadn't understood yet that there's a domain of his heart that was not fully submitted to Jesus Christ in which he actually could see that praise is only the culmination or the fruition, the completion of joy. That is, if you love him, you have to praise him. It's, it's a necessary consequent, whether for whatever it is. That is, there is something that's so perfect, so beautiful, that it cannot just simply be passed by. It has to be paused upon and praised. And that's what's going on. That is only appropriate, it only makes sense that all those who love God, that is his worshipers, his crowd, his fan base, would say, you should praise him too, because he's awesome. And without knowing his awesomeness, without knowing his perfection, that's just a stumbling block. And it was for him to say, why? How are you telling me what to do when it comes to my heart and my will or my joys? So let's look at this psalm and not stumble through it. But you see, there's two main structures, two main points to it all. The first is a promise. And then that promise is reiterated in verse 4. The first is this. We find a promise of perfect rulership. That is, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. And then immediately following that promise is completion or the fruition of that promise. It is coming your way, whatever this king is. The Lord will send forth from Zion a mighty scepter to rule all the nations and to rule in the midst of your enemies. That is, this king is not ruling and reigning so much from a distance, though he might be. But there is an existential, a real present lordship to his kingdom. That is, from the very midst of your enemies, he will rule and reign. Again, that's the first half. Second half reiterates the same thing, but differently. And actually even more strongly, more powerfully. Because it says, not only just as a prophetic oracle, the Lord says to my Lord, the word there for saying is Naha, which is a, uh, an oracle, not just a speech, not just saying things, but prophetically saying, the Lord will say to your Lord, sit at my right hand. But this next verse, verse 4, it particularly speaks of an oath that is a promise. The Lord, again, doubling up, the Lord has sworn 
And he will not change his mind on this one. You will be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And what follows that again is the same thing, a completion or fruition of that promise, in which it says, the Lord will be at your right hand, and he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among all the nations. And it says, filling all these nations with corpses. So violent psalm. He will shatter their heads, the chiefs, that is. And then he will drink water at the brook, by the way. And therefore he'll lift up his head. Have we stumbled through that one yet? What is going on? This promise, prophecy, not only that, a very vow. A promise that is grounded in God's own nature. That it will be this way. And God will not change his mind. There is no circumstance or vicissitude in this life that can thwart this particular promise. That is, if you read the story of Jonah, right? Jonah is supposed to go to Nineveh and prophesy to the whole city that unless you repent, doesn't say that though. He says, in 40 days, this city will be destroyed. He didn't say you should repent. But they all repented, and guess what? The city wasn't destroyed. That is, there's some promises of God that have an underlying circumstance that maybe it won't happen this way. Maybe the circumstances will change. Maybe the city won't be destroyed. But you see, there's something here to this king that it matters absolutely nothing what this world does. He will be the king. He will be the priest. And no matter what anyone does or chooses or tries to do, he will not change his mind. It must be this way. The question then again is, can you sing this psalm? Not just can you read it. Can you hear a sermon on it? Can it start to make sense to you? But can it actually be, and this is the nature of singing, music, it, you don't have time to think through all the words. You actually just have to sing it as the stanzas come, as the music plays along. That this psalm would be so close to your heart that you can actually sing it without having to make sense of it because you already know it so well and sing it upward. That is, sing it not just as a musical rendition, but worship worshipfully saying, O Lord, sit on your throne. Sit at the right hand. That you could worship through this song. That you can actually sing this song because of its perfections for what is it actually saying. See, that really is the nature of the thing. We, we praise when we see perfect. So I had this conversation with a friend a few weeks ago. And uh, we were speaking about um, uh, like really successful athletes, right? Because that is what perfection is, right? When you see something really good, that, that's going to result in praise, right? You go to that one restaurant and you have to tell somebody, you should go there. You hear that one song and you tell someone, can you listen to this with me? Right? So, like there was a time when I was talking to everybody about this Italian uh, musician, Ludovico Anadi. 
and like he plays the piano, it's, it's just like the world stops spinning and just like you feel like God made music and this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. Now that's just my personal opinion, but I tell people that. Listen to that guy, he's amazing. Because um, if it's so good and it's so beautiful, the praise results, you have, to, you have to get it out. You have to share it with someone. There's a mutuality to praising when you, when you come in contact with something beautiful or perfect. But, but yesterday we were driving, uh, Heather and I were driving down to Pittsburgh, and the song, I'm a Barbie Girl, came on in a Barbie world. And uh, we'd change a station. <laughs> there just was, doesn't seem, 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 seem to work. We were just like, oh, this is beautiful. I'm glad I could share this song with you. So we're driving down to Pittsburgh. It's really sweet. There's just, see, there's something beautiful that you want to share that. And that's what praise is. Praise God. Praise him. You see that perfection. I was speaking with a friend about athletes, right? And uh, a surprise, the three top most um, paid athletes of all time, uh, Michael Jordan, about two billion, Tiger Woods, little under that. And that I was surprised the third one was Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer, it's about a billion, even though he passed away, his net worth was around there. And uh, that struck close to home, of course, because I was from Latrobe, and I remember always walking past his little shrine in the hallway in the school. Arnold Palmer went to school here, and he, and he put balls in holes. And see, that's what our, we talked about. We were saying how amazing it is that you have um, these athletes that essentially put balls in holes, and they make so much money doing it. Then you've got a social worker who's trying to get a kid a home and a warm bed. And they make nothing. Just, we talked about that for a while. Isn't that funny? But see, that really is what the Psalms are saying. See, it's not so much about putting balls in holes. Because Michael Jordan could put a ball in a hole better than anybody. And then there's a smaller ball in a smaller hole farther distance away. And Tiger Woods is over a billion dollars in net worth. See, it's not so much about putting the ball in the hole. It's just how well they do it. They're doing it so much better than anyone else. And it's really about perfection. It's really about amazing. Michael Jordan crosses over, shoots a shot. Buzzer beater beats the Cavs in the fifth of the first round finals, 1989. You see that video in every commercial. You see the stadium going nuts because they have to praise. They have to praise. The heart has to exalt in something good, something perfect, something beautiful. We were made for that. The question is, could anyone dare get more excited over this psalm than putting a dang ball in a hole? That's my job. I'm going to try to do that this morning with you. It says this. 
the Lord. The Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The first word Lord is Yahweh. The only distinct word used of the one true God. So therefore the one true God has said to another one, also called Lord, who is called Adonai, which could be a king or anybody who is high in honor. So the one true God, Yahweh, not just saying, but prophesying, the word say there is not the normal word for saying. The one true Lord, Yahweh, has prophesied to another Lord, Adonai, you sit right here and let the world watch you. Sounds like that man in Psalm 2. That man in Psalm 2 was supposed to crack the nations with a rod of iron. And this man in Psalm 110, the Lord will send forth from that same city, Zion, a scepter to rule the world. It sounds like Psalm 2 in the sense that everyone was told in Psalm 2, this man, kiss him, pledge allegiance to him and him alone. And here we find this man in Psalm 110. I will make everybody, all of your enemies will be at your feet. They will lick the dust. They will submit to you with perfect allegiance. Now sit here. But there's a difference. Psalm 2 spoke about this king being like a son of God. It said, I will tell of a decree... The Lord has said to me, you are my son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you as a king over the world. You will be so powerful as a king over the whole world. It will be as though you were like my son. You will rule almost like a god. Maybe like the god, Yahweh. But there's no reference to a son here. It just says, the Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. We know the king of Israel in 2 Samuel 7. Is to be like a son of God. That's the whole point. Because out of David's lineage, God said, I will build a house for you. And everyone in your house, that is all the people that come from you, will be like sons of God. I shall be a father to him and he shall be a father to me. That was God's promise in 2 Samuel 7. And now here it all ties. In Matthew 22, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. They ask him all these questions. They try to stump him and try to get him in a corner and make him look foolish. And then he goes to them and he flips the tables for a change and actually asks them a question. Not a lot, not many, just one. And it was enough. Matthew says, the conversation ended after this question. Jesus simply said to the Pharisees, what do you think about the Messiah? This king in Psalm 2 who is anointed. What do you think about this Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said, well, it's obvious he's the son of David. And then he responds, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. If David calls him Lord, how also is he his son? That is, this son of David is higher than David. Doesn't make sense. The Pharisees have nothing to say. They want to stop talking. 
But the reality is that there is a reference to the Son. Through the words of David, who is the King of Israel, who is the Son of God, from 2 Samuel. But there is a son of the son of God. There is son, someone who is very much like God is David, who is like a son of God, king over Israel, ruling well. But then there will be a son to come from David in which David will call him Lord. How does that make sense? Who is this man particularly? Who is most higher than his own father? Higher than his father David? And then... That's the first verse. He reiterates, the psalm reiterates the first verse again in verse 4. But not only speaking of a king, that is, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at this right hand that you would be a king to rule the world. But also, the Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You also be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Which means not only that this man is higher than David, but saying is, This man is higher than Abraham. And what was Abraham's name? Father. Av is father. Avraham is father of a multitude. So, So this man is higher than his father David, who calls him Lord in a prophetic psalm. And this man is higher than the father of the faith, the beginning of it all. Abraham himself. Because he is of an order of Melchizedek. To understand that story, remember in Genesis 14, Abraham goes through and rescues his son-in-law from a bunch of kings that went through the land and killed everybody and stole them. And he won in the battle. He took his men and he succeeded. And right after, This random figure in Genesis 14 just shows up out of nowhere. And his name is Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. And he's from a king of the land of Salem, which is the old city of Jerusalem, the place where David's ruling now. So the father of David is Abraham. Abraham get his name changed to Abraham that he would be the father of a multitude of people. Yet in this psalm, This man is higher than Abraham because when Abraham won his war, he gave one-tenth of the spoil to this man named Melchizedek, who was a priest to Abraham. That is, closer to God than Abraham. That is, everything he won in the battle, he gave over to a king who was a priest, who had more authority and more dignity than the very father of the whole entire covenant people of redemption, the lineage of which Jesus Christ came through. That is, This man is higher than David. This man is higher than Abraham. And so to understand this psalm, so that you could sing it, like mean it, it is all about the throne. He sits on a throne. It's a perfect throne. It is glorious. It is worth getting excited about. It is worth meditating on. That is, the whole psalm is nothing more than a man sitting down. Talk about sports to get excited over. Did you see that? He sat. And the crowd goes wild. That's it. But see, you can only sing it. You can only possibly get excited from it. When you know what it means. 
that he is sitting most high. He is sitting as a man of war. He is sitting as a king. He is sitting as a priest. If you can see all this, you can sing it. You see the perfections of what I just said. Most high. Most high. Sitting as a man of war. A warrior sitting. And also as a king and as a priest. See, Hebrews 1 says this. To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Hebrews 1.13 To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand, and I will make your enemies your footstool. That is, there is no, in scripture, order of creation, there is no creation higher. There is a man who is sitting on a throne. To which of the angels, to which to David, to which to Abraham, all the great titans of the faith, even the most majestic angelic beings, have never had this honor or dignity. That he sat down at the right hand of God. And this is a man who came to save you. So when he sits down, consider maybe clapping your hands. To understand what this means, Hebrews is pointing out, this is a big deal, a big deal for you, that a man would sit like this. See, it, no compartmentalizing of our heart in which Jesus Christ would be in a taxonomy of our loves. That somewhere between donuts and coffee, we happen to like Jesus. Jesus himself says, whoever does not hate his own father and mother, his wife, or his children, his brother, or his sister. Yes, if you don't even hate your own life in reference to your love to Jesus, he simply says, you don't know me. You don't even know that I sat down. And everyone's supposed to say, what does it mean that you sat down? You don't even know that he is seated at the right hand of God. There is no treasure greater. There is nothing in this world that can be offered to you. There is nothing in all the heavens with the angels that could even come close to the reality that there is a man who lives for you. His heart beats for you. He lived and died for you. He rose for you. He ascended for you. And he sat down for you. Now, if there is anything that you might dare love more than him, you don't understand him. You don't understand. It's way of subtraction. By addition, again, if we were going to go play pickup basketball here in the South Building, and Michael Jordan happened to be there, even today, especially this prime, and we're all picking teams, and someone picked me over him, I'd say, you just did subtraction by addition. You got me. That was addition. We're going to lose. <laughs> you should have picked Mike. If you pick anything but Jesus, you're lost. Take the whole world, everything, add it to yourself. Eat till you can eat no more. Put more money in your bank account till you, everyone else is talking about it. Buy, 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 consume, consume. Take it all in. You lost it all. There's a man sitting at the right hand of God. Would you not want him? Wouldn't it be better to have him? Subtraction 
by glutting ourselves of addition. There's only one this high. And he, can you sing the psalm of this enthroned man, Jesus, who is a man of war? This is a hard psalm to sing. That is, it's a great antithesis to the Christian life. That is, enmity, hostility, controversy, conflict. That's what the psalms sing. If you go on K-Love with the radio, I guarantee there's no present contemporary Christian music that is talking about Jesus filling the nations with corpses. The Christian top ten, I bet it didn't make it in as one of the stanzas. But the reality is, this is to be sung. There's a weakness to modern Christianity. Trip over ourselves to entertain the spirit of the age. Tacitly endorsing whatever vogue sin the civic gods endorse. And not realizing there is an antithesis to the Christian life. There's a godliness that is of war. To say, I will serve the Lord and no other. Paul says to Timothy, Endure hardship like a good soldier for Christ Jesus. Not serving as a soldier to get involved in civilian affairs. You want to please your commanding officer. That is, Jesus Christ in a sense is our commanding officer. He is a man of war who sits on a throne and he will subdue the nations. Willingly or unwillingly. Now if you can't sing these songs, and these songs are not into the lifeblood of our church, it is no wonder the churches, you put, I love the phrases people say, that jelly in evangelism, evangelicalism, spineless, don't you know there is light and darkness? Don't you know there is truth and lies? Don't you know there is Satan and Bial? Don't you know there is the one true Christ, a man sitting on the throne, and that this antithesis we live in, we accept, we embrace it in a godly fashion to say, I will serve the Lord and no other. Come death or life, I will serve the Lord and no other. For it really is a matter of death and life. An antithesis of war. That we could say, that you could say with your dying breath, quoting 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And there is prepared for me a crown of righteousness. But you have to fight to get there. You have to sing a psalm like this of a man enthroned in heaven who is a man of war. He's also... A man, Jesus, who is enthroned as the king of the world. That is, he's enthroned and waiting patiently. The beauty of this is he is a king ruling the world from a seated position. That is, Jesus is not going around, running around, trying to subdue the nations. The actual word is, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. See, there's a passive authority to this. There's the reality that Jesus has finished what he is doing. 
He has already won. He has paid it all and redeemed and resurrected and ascended. And he has sat down and he will not get up until all his enemies are made his footstool. That is, he doesn't have to do a thing. There is a certain personal ontonic power of his in which he will rule the world from his throne and he will not break a sweat doing it. The last sweat and blood he ever did was on Calvary. And there is only more now for authority and glory as his hegemony and dominion extends from that throne. That all will come to his footstool and be gravitated there as if it were the force of Mars or Jupiter. That same power is the same power that is under this throne. You can sing of that. You have to sing of that. When the world is pushing all around, when it does not seem as though, as Hebrews says, at this present time, Hebrews 2.8, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, which is true. And the last of it, of course, is all death, the last enemy to be destroyed. But you have to see in the psalm. Can you sing the psalm? In the midst of death, a trial, or torment, that there is a man sitting on his throne and he is not worried, he is not working, he is resting and waiting to subdue all things to his gospel. Psalm 22 says that God is enthroned upon the praises of Israel. That is, we praise him and he is enthroned above us, which in a sense would make us kind of like a footstool. That our praises are us coming to his feet. That the nations praising God, bringing up his praises are like a throne and we all below him in the footstool. That is the method. That is the way he comes to subdue the world. The verse says, it says particularly in Psalm 110 here, the verse was, your people offer themselves willingly in the day of your power. There's a free pool of the heart in which people are drawn to this man. The only blood he's ever shed was his own. Everyone sees that in the psalm. Your people are freely offering. Freely giving your heart to him. Freely seeing his beauty and perfection. Leaving it to praise. The last of it all is this. Singing Singing of a man who's enthroned, not only as a king, that is, as a priest. It's true. You sing of him as a king, with fire in his eyes, and a harshness and a power that is truly righteous and full of goodness. But he's also a priest. That is, he sits on this throne a tremendous amount of mercy. There's mercy in his eyes. See, there's a type of love of approaching the Lord through Christ that, you, that draws you to him. That you see really what he has done to get to that throne. And he's done nothing except love you with his own life. See, Hebrews 10 says, Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sin. There was no seat in the temple. We're singing of a priest who's sitting down. No priest walked up into that temple and sat anywhere. They walked, they did their work, and they got out. 
They stood there, Hebrews 10, 11 says, always offering the same sacrifices. That could never take away sin anyway. He says, but when Christ had offered for all time that single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. And the only seat I know of in the temple is the mercy seat. That's it. He sits there. He's sitting there. You see, go to God through him. It's over. Do you ever feel dirty or distant? Do you ever feel unworthy? Do you want to go fix yourself? Do you want to go do something for God? Jesus isn't even doing anything for God because he did it already. He is seated. That is, there is nothing you can do or ever could have done. Now look to him. Your salvation is complete in him. That is, all his active and passive perfections are seated there on the throne of mercy. And those perfections, when you see them, will cause you to sing this psalm in a way that that perfection will lead you or precipitate you to praise him. To praise him. Better than the best slam dunk. Better than the best hole in one. There is a man who sits on that throne perfect in righteousness for you. There is a man who will never get up from that throne to do anything else to save you because he has already done everything he needs to do to save you. That is, look to him. Call upon him. Lean upon him. His name will be heard. There is no mediator. There is no priest who can sit here at the right hand of God. There is no one to call upon that you might be saved. There is no one to speak of that can actually have the ear of God himself except the eternally begotten Son of God himself who is seated on that throne in flesh, in life, in pure actualized human righteousness. It's perfect. It's beautiful. It's worth everything. He sits enthroned. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him. Since he always lives to make intercession. He's not getting up. He's done. Death cannot touch him. Sin cannot corrupt him. And the world cannot resist him. It's Jesus Sitted on that throne. Dear Father God. We praise you. We confess our lives upon you. Lord we know. How that high priest went in with the names written on his chest. Dear Lord. Put our name there. As that thief said on the cross. Lord remember me when you go into your father's kingdom. Dear Lord there is no place we would rather be to dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of our life. Oh Lord, we thank you for that beauty you've given us. We pray you reveal it more and more for Jesus Christ's name, for his glory and praise. And Lord, help us to sing this, that this would be the song of our life, that Jesus Christ is on our throne. Amen.